0: This is Helena Cobbin, the owner of Just World Books. The second of the books that we'll be publishing in fall 2010 is Gaza Mom Palestine, Politics, Parenting, and Everything in Between by Leila El Haddad, who is the longtime author of the great blog Gaza Mom. So a little while ago, I was able to get Leila on the Skype phone. She's in Gaza. She, you know, she's been in Gaza for most of the summer of 2010, and um, it's been a little bit difficult to contact her, but she's carried on working on the book, and so have our editorial team, and so have I. As I said, I got her on the Skype phone, and I was able to record a little podcast interview with her. In the background, you will hear some generators buzzing, and you may hear her daughter, Noor, who is now, I think, nearly three years old. Um, so anyway, I said to Layla, that makes it authentic. And here's how the discussion went. I'm hearing a lot of generators in the background.
1: Yes, yeah, that's you know something that I um, that I noticed when I came back, and I'd heard about obviously, and I've written about my father having purchased one prior to the war because of the extended power outages and the, the punitive um, fuel restrictions and and so forth. But, you know, it was just something sort of very, very in your face. When when I came back, I noticed that whenever the electricity would would go out in these rotating power cuts,
0: on one whole
1: block or one whole street, you would just hear this tremendous roar of generators, this continuous roar of generators. And um, it's gotten a little better in the past couple of weeks. They've reached an agreement where... There's a little bit more fuel being allowed in, but still, as you can see, there's still these power outages that continue for many hours at a time.
0: So how, how many hours of uh, electricity are you getting um, on the on the grid at this point per day?
1: Well, like I said, now, for the for the past month and a half, it was, we were getting about seven to eight hours of electricity continuously, and then nine to 12 hours without. Um, but you know just this past week it's gone a little better so now we're actually getting about on some days and this varies from district to district but here in Japan we're getting about 20 hours and then maybe six or seven hour outages yeah yeah and it was you know combine that with the with the, uh, with the fierce heat and the heat wave that we were experiencing in July and August and that it made for a very difficult Ramadan
0: and really difficult for households to keep the food fresh and everything else
1: huh oh yeah absolutely I mean this is another thing that I uh, that I it's these kind of little details that you don't realize you don't think about until you come here is that you can't buy food and store it even for more than a day in your refrigerator or your freezer I mean that we were using the freezer essentially as a refrigerator um, especially during those very long outages, putting anything perishable, uh, milk, or I mean, we stopped buying fresh milk, we now use powdered milk to, to avoid that problem. Oh, exactly? Okay? okay.
0: So, um, uh, I, I, I know you've got okay. a lot to do there um, in your apartment and with the kids and all. I'd just like to ask you a couple of quick questions. The first is what is your h- main hope with the book
1: Gaza Mom? Well, I'm obviously very excited that I've finally gotten the chance to, to do this, to write this book, because for years it's been this idea in my mind that people have encouraged me to do, and you know I myself kept, they just kept new, you know more obstacles. New, new obstacles are always presenting themselves. And um, so that's the first thing, and I'm hoping it will provide people with a window into Gaza that, a, a different window, a different kind of uh, understanding and interpretation of Gaza, one that they're not maybe accustomed to seeing or reading or hearing about in the mainstream media. And really personalizing the occupation, personalizing the situation uh, in general. And you know, through understanding my life in Gaza and understanding Gaza, I think, allows one to understand the Palestinian situation as a whole.
0: Well, I have to tell you, as the publisher, I'm just thrilled to be able to publish the book. I think the way you've pulled together the kind of the personal um, reflections and the little windows into your family life, and pull that together with the big political situation is just very, very compelling and very moving, so I'm, I'm thrilled to be publishing it. Um, Leila, this is your first visit back. Um, now, in the summer of 2010, for three years, what are the main things you notice, like the effects of Israel's Operation Cast Lead or, you know, the prolonged siege? Three years seems like a long time.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I would say the first thing that I noticed coming back, I I mentioned the generators, which are, again, have become this this fixture of the, uh, you know, the Gaza streetscape. Uh, The other thing I immediately noticed was how completely isolated, Gaza has always been very isolated, but really how Gaza's isolation has come full circle and how being in Gaza is kind of like being in this very strange uh, bubble, completely disconnected uh, both physically but also uh, I want to say sort of Uh, psychologically from the West Bank. I mean, there's no, and that also has to do with the internal Palestinian problems, but there's no mention of Ramallah. There's very few um, flags of other Palestinian factions around anywhere. Uh, The only other group that has any kind of presence, you know, visible presence is maybe the PFLP. But it's very strange. It's just really Gaza on its own. And, and, you know, and I, I, I know that in Ramallah, it's the same, and that's, we hear much more about that when, we're, when there's talk of direct negotiations. Gaza never mentioned. When one attends any kind of function hosted by uh, the Ramallah Palestinian Authority, whether in the United States or elsewhere, again, Gaza is not mentioned. So it's, again, this divide that I feel has come full circle between the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Uh, and, uh, you know, the third thing that I noticed is that people are really trying to. Make a life for themselves and 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 live in any way that they know how, despite despite the situation and the, and the siege and the and the circumstances. And um, you know, so people aren't necessarily complaining. They're just, this is our life, and we have to do something about it. And um, and it's you know the, the the innovation and the resilience of the people here never cease to amaze me. There's a lot of, I mean, there's also Gaza's, uh, economically speaking, or socioeconomically speaking. There's been a lot of restructuring in Gaza, so there's this new class that have been, that has formed as a result of the tunnel trade, which has completely flourished. Of course, the last time I was here, the tunnel trade was very secretive. It was very, it was, um, it was basically limited to. Um, cigarettes sometimes some processed cheeses but mainly spark plugs and cigarettes and things like this bullets things that were small and profitable but now that that complete you know as the economist Omar Shaban puts it, the Gaza tunnel trade has become, Gaza has become entirely black meaning it's an entirely almost uh, you know, black market economy, and it's become completely institutionalized now, you know, on the official level, businessmen and government, and there's even taxes on the tunnel goods. So that's something else uh, that I've noticed. But um, And of course, the, the main thing I noticed, and, and maybe I was able to notice this because I'm, I'm coming in after a three-year absence, is the, the absolute prevalence of calm and security in Gaza. And of course, for people here, that's kind of old news. And for them, they're dealing with the continuous electricity outages that have completely uh, frustrated their lives and with uh, a variety of other things, with the inability to leave Gaza, with the, with the uh, problem with not being able to export anything, with the uh, siege affecting the, uh, the industry. And so for them, again, you know, well, big deal, yeah, we have security. But for me, it's very stark, because the last time I was here, of course, was when the Palestinian infighting and the chaos and lawlessness had completely, uh, completely paralyzed Gaza's streets. So that's, that's obviously a huge difference. And that's, you know, one no longer has to worry about going out at night or, or getting robbed or getting shot at in an act of internal violence. And so.
0: Yeah, that was a big, uh, in your book, you know, in 2006, 2005, just the internal chaos seemed. seemed- overwhelming, so that must be a big difference for you. I just noticed on your blog that you have some great things about, you know, some of these little agricultural projects, or maybe they're pretty big agricultural projects, but it looks as though, you know, Gaza's people really are resilient and trying to make do with what you have.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and again, this is another element to understanding Gaza. I always say people have a monolithic understanding of Gaza, and it's, you know, you have the Hamas government, and and the siege, and, and you know, I'm talking here both about people that are sympathetic to or the, to Gaza or people who are apologists for the Israeli government, you know, because you, on one hand you have people saying oh well, you know, poor Gaza and humanitarian crisis and as, as though the siege were simply about food, which I hear time and time again that it's not, and people are very offended by that notion that the siege is simply about the uh, inavailability of food, when actually it's about the accessibility to food. So foods are coming in, whether through tunnels or through Israel. That's not the issue. And people remind me time and again that this is actually a siege of freedoms. It's a siege on people's ability to move freely, a siege on people's ability to develop and to, and to uh, their society and their economy uh, and to prosper. Uh, it's a siege on intellectual freedoms. You know, there, there haven't been any books that have come into Gaza uh, for over four years now. Uh, and it's a siege on the ability of goods to be exported out of Gaza, and that brings us back into these agricultural projects, um, which the which I uh, was able to tour the other day. So the the uh, Ministry of Agriculture here has drawn up a 10-year plan uh, that that essentially envisions a much more self-sufficient Gaza uh, within 10 years. One one where one that is largely based on organic agriculture uh, and a switch to rain-fed crops and move away from the uh, export-driven cash crops that actually Israel, when it first occupied Gaza, began to uh, uh, itself restructure Gaza's agriculture uh, in that regard, because it wanted, it didn't want to have to compete with Gaza's citrus. And and what it did was that it encouraged, it subsidized farmers to grow strawberries in the north and, and again, uh, cash crops like that. And so what happened, of course, when Israel began to closed Gaza's borders punitively and arbitrarily is that these farmers and the the Gaza economy was devastated as a result. So the idea behind this plan is to avoid that kind of scenario and is to move move back to kind of more traditional agricultural methods. And it's really impressive. I mean, some of these projects, there's, you know, my favorite was the mushroom farm, which um, many economists I've spoken to have said Gaza could one day specialize in of course were it not for the closures, it can't export any of these things, so this is for local consumption and for restaurants and so on. Uh, There's the organic composting facilities in the central Gaza Strip, and these are all in the former Israeli settlements. There's the greenhouses that are being used to grow uh, tomatoes and uh, fruits, and then there's the, uh, what they, these really uh, well-landscaped gardens, you know, what they call gardens, fruit gardens. So there's the the stone fruit gardens and the citrus gardens, and um, there's again this massive uh, massive date uh, garden. And all of these things, they're seeing that they'll be productive within three to five years. But again, it's all very interesting that things are happening internally, they're trying their best, whether it's the people, whether it's private initiatives, whether it's the government, to make Gaza productive in whatever limited capacity they have and of course that is very limited because again there's no exports and there's very limited raw materials coming in to allow people to to build new things or to or to fix the things that were destroyed in the war
0: well i think it's great that we have you there to report on all this stuff because so many people in the west just have no idea about it so you know i think uh, i urge people to go and read your blog and i definitely urge them to read your book when it comes out i'm thrilled that we're able to publish the book Leila. And I need to run, um, say hello to your parents and to your kids, and have a wonderful uh, rest of the Ramadan.
1: Thank you, Elena.